You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is the one beautiful day that we're going to have apparently this week in Jerusalem. The show's being pre-taped. One beautiful sunny day amidst all the much appreciated rain. And it's really my honor to be sitting with Rabbi Francis Nataf and talking about um, his last book in the series. And we're talking about why it came in the middle, Redeeming Relevance uh, in the Book of Leviticus. For those of you who have been listening to me for a long time, so you know that I've interviewed him before as the other books came out. So first of all, Rabbi Natav, congratulations on Leviticus. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And as everybody, or as most of my listeners know, Leviticus is the third book, um, Vayikra, for those of us who uh, speak Hebrew. So you did it out of order. So can you tell us why? That's right. Well, anybody who knows the Bible, anybody who knows the first five books of the Bible know that Leviticus is the hard book. Um, so much so that a lot of people just avoid it. Um, in fact, some of my colleagues, they do a wonderful job on Genesis. They get to Exodus and they're pumped up and they're excited. And then they get to Leviticus and they stop. <laughs> and they don't even get to the next books because they're, they're stumped and stopped. So um, I had that same syndrome. And when I finished Exodus, I was slowing down and not sure what to do. And I said, you know, there's more than one ways to skin a cat. I'm going to go on. And I'll get back to it. And that's what worked for me. I, I continued on, to, as as you know, I continued on to the next books, to Numbers and to Deuteronomy. And by that time, I had more going for me in terms of understanding, momentum, um, and people writing. You, ha- you have to tell something about Leviticus. So it came as the end of the series, but I think the strategy worked out well. And I, I think there's something to be gained from that just in general in life when you come up to something that's a challenge, there's uh, there's other ways about going about it. And, you know, go on to the next thing, come back to it. Um, so, you know, work for me. So one of the interesting things that I've heard about Leviticus is that, uh, I mean, it's got all these details and all this, like, it's like boring stuff. And we've had all these stories and, you know, and families and intrigue and drama. It's incredible. And then we get into all these little details. So one of the things that I've heard that, uh, that I find it interesting is that the message is that Judaism doesn't have secrets. Okay. The Bible, I should say more correctly, right? Doesn't have secrets. And so we're going to know it's not going to be, I mean, at the time that it's written, um, worship of God, a lot of it is like you have a few priests and they know and just trust me and give me your money or give me your whatever. And then I'll make it all right with God. I'm like the interlocutor with God. And, and what this is saying is even in the places that we're not going to be, most of us not being Levites or priests, not living even when in the time where there's a temple, even what the high priest is doing all by himself in the Holy of Holies, just on one day a year, Yom Kippur, we're going to know there's no hoo hoo stuff here. Uh, what do you feel about that? Yeah, it makes sense. I think the axis between priests and Israelites is meant to be open, but even more than not keeping it a secret, I mean, certainly that's the very basic element, which I think you're absolutely right about. Um, what I present in my book is that the priestly order is really a model. In other words, we're, we tend to not be interested in this right and not understand it, but the Torah and and the, the middle book of the Torah 
in Jewish tradition is called Torah Kohanim, which means the the law of the of the priests, right? So the question is, so if the law of the priests, let the priests read it, and that way you don't have to get bored, right? right. But the, the it's like their handbook, so right. fine, you yeah, take exactly. it. You know, you're in. You, you like got it. you got no, the five no, credits no, of AP priesthood, right. and leave right. the rest of us alone. That's right. Uh, so, so my, my, um, understanding after working on it is that really it's presenting a model for what the Jewish people is all about. As you know, in another book of the Torah in Exodus, um, the Jews are referred to as a nation of priests. Now, sometimes that's mentioned oftentimes in nice sermonics and synagogues, but very few people really think about what that means. Um, if we take that seriously, as I think we should, then we have to ask, what is a priest? What does he do? What's, what's the meaning of a priest? Um, because Jews are supposed to be priests. Um, you know, they're supposed to be this class of people. Uh, I mean, I'm giving a very brief on one foot definition of what, how I see the role of a priest. Um, they're this class of people who's supposed to help other people with their spirituality. And again, the question is, well, how do you do that? Many people have tried different things. As you mentioned, some ancient cults. So it's, you know, take your money and, and, go into the temple, do all sorts of hocus-pocus, and and then, you know, the person is somehow affected, maybe. Um, but the Jews, or the Torah, sees it differently and wants to expose that whole plan as a model for taking that one notch lower, taking the idea of priesthood, bring it down one notch lower and say, okay, now Jews, you understand now what priests are, what priests do, um, do it yourselves. And as you guys are priests for everybody else, you see how your own priests operate. Pay attention to that because you're going to, you know, it's like when you, you, you um, um, uh, have someone, you, you tutor someone in, in a practical art. So what do you tell them? Say, pay careful attention because you're going to have to do this too. And that's how I understand the book of Leviticus. It's not about the priest really. It's about the rest of us, and it's about that relationship that exists between the priests and the people, which is translated into the Jews and the rest of humanity. So that's the way I see it. So we shouldn't get so hung up on take the ashes and sprinkle this and sprinkle that and wear this this way, and more on the general idea of what it means to bring God or spirituality and hopefully spirituality into our day-to-day life. So I think that's true um, with a caveat. I think that um, part of the message is that details are important. The specific details are less important than understanding that you're supposed to care about little details, tedious details. And I think that's a message. In other words, sometimes there's an over-message, like in, in Kohelet, for example, Ecclesiastes. One of the hardest books. I don't know if you've ever spent much time with Ecclesiastes. Um, and the feeling I got from reading is this is going around in circles. This is extremely frustrating. Then I realized that's the point. That's exactly what he's trying to communicate, not just by words, but by general feeling. In other words, you're supposed to, that's exactly what the author is trying to do. He's supposed to make you feel like this is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that the training is an integral part of where you're going. Like, I mean, I have a gun license, for yeah, example. Yeah. And anybody and other people, whoever have, will say to you, unless you're going to train all the time so that it's second nature when you have to use right. it, 
don't take it out. So is this what Judaism is, is training us to certain behaviors so that it's right there? What seems tedious is really part of changing us who we are, so it becomes an integral part of us? Yeah, I, I would say training and the details. And was when you learn how to shoot a gun, I, I actually, I took, I, I don't, I, um, in my duty as home guards, I also learned mm-hmm. how to shoot a gun, but I haven't, you know, God protect us if I ever had to actually do it. Uh, but in any case, you know, the, those details, learning every step of the way, is important. You know, why? Because there's something real going on. If you shoot the wrong way or, or you know, the, the gun explodes, you're in trouble. And I think real life is that way also. So the, the metaphor you bring is actually a really good metaphor. So I think one is the training um, that, yeah, you have to do this over and over again and, and know what you're doing. Uh, but the point that I wanted to make is not only is the training important, but the, the details. Every step, you know, when you're operating anything, uh, all the more so human life, which is so much more complicated than a piece of machinery, um, the details are important. And we know that from the rest of Judaism. Um, but I think Leviticus brings it to a focus and you know, is saying that you know, where the details seem to almost not matter, this almost confounds us by, by presenting details. And we say, you know, what difference if it's this animal or that animal, if the blood goes on before, after, um, and the answer is that you may not understand every little piece, but each piece matters. And if you want to be a priest, if you want to be a priest of the nation, nations, then you have to take care of details. You have to be a refined person. Refinement, expertise comes with being a master of something. And same way as the actual priest is the master of his right, the Jew is supposed to be a master of spirituality, and he comes to that partly by knowing details of what to do, how to live his life. So it seems to me that we've lost some of that. Um, if you know, Also, I, I do believe, and I'd love to hear what you think, that there were elements that we don't understand anymore, that there were certain hidden messages, hidden meanings, both to, to a lot of the things that had to do with the temple, or I was just in Shiloh with a group, uh, this week, and we were discussing the Mishkan, the tabernacle, of course, the weekly portions that we're in right now, or a lot of discussions about the tabernacle, that there is much more now someone would say like, ooh, you know, she's getting into all this weird stuff and powers, but that the stones of the of the breastplate, each stone wasn't just a stone, it had deeper meanings connected to nature, connected to God, that the animals, that all those things that we now say are oh, just like rituals. There's so many things in Judaism we don't understand, even like getting to Kashrut, like not eating certain foods may not just be because they'll give you digestive problems or, you know, meat and milk together don't go down well. There's something bigger here on a level that we don't understand, even with all the science that we know. So is it possible that Leviticus is a book of a lot of these things that we're learning it, but we're really learning it as best as we can superficially because some of this knowledge of the ancient world was lost, whether it was because the physical buildings were lost, that you know, or the center, the, the temple, the first the tabernacle and later on the temples, or because when we left our land we lost it. Like we are we are thousands of years after when all of this is written. Something did get lost. Uh, like and and so I'll ask you and I'm throwing a lot of questions at you at once, can we get it back? That's an interesting question. Um whether we can get it back. Well, let me let me backtrack first to the beginning of the question. The there's no there's no question that no matter how good a tradition is, 
it's never going to be foolproof and it's never going to be such so accurate that you're going to remember and keep every detail of information. Part of that is interesting is because uh, we assume a lot of things. There's a lot of things we don't tell each other because we assume them to be correct. We assume them to be knowledge. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about the dial phone. I don't know if you're old enough to remember <laughs> dial phones, but um, you know, we know what it is, but we don't think of explaining how a dial phone works to our children because it's obvious, right? Everybody knows how to, but you know, there's a cute phone. I, a cute picture I saw the other day of someone holding up the receiver of a dial phone up to take a picture with, because that's what a phone does, right? It takes pictures. Um, so, you know, there's, there, and, if, and this is one thing from just, you know, the short period of time we're living, obviously over hundreds and thousands of years, there's all sorts of information going to be lost. All the more so when something's not practiced. So this, the sacrificial right is, hasn't been practiced for 2,000 years, basically. Um, so obviously there are going to be things that are going to fall away and be less understood. Um, can we get it back? Um, well, experience uh, will help some of it come back. I don't, you know, it, it, it's funny because we have in history all sorts of things that are referred to as renaissances. Well, what's a renaissance? Renaissance is bringing back something that used to be. Um, is it the same? It's never the same, but one can go back to earlier periods and bring back some of what was held before. Um, just one thing I wanted to point out, though, I think that the, the most critical thing that we've lost is not so much uh, knowledge but feeling. I think the sense of what it is and why it's meaningful to give a sacrifice, I think that's where we're completely lost. Um, and the first chapter, I, I try to reconnect to what's the essence of sacrifice. Um, and, and again, not to focus on the details so much, to focus on some of the details, but primarily on, on the idea of, of sacrifice is man's attempt to give something to God, which is really a very difficult and profound concept. You know, uh, giving is very connected to person's relationship with another person. And uh, if we want to have a close relationship with God, we model it on the best relationship we know about, which is between humans. Some things transfer easily and other things don't. One of them is giving. Sacrifice is an attempt to take that aspect of the interhuman relationship and transfer it to the relationship between man and God. So the relationship, though, could be based, and this is a big thing for me, as my, as my listeners know, on fear or on love. I mean, you could give something to somebody because you love them, and that's why you want to show your love. Or you can give it because they have some kind of power over you, which definitely fits in where we're dealing with God. And it's like I kind of, it's more of a placating kind of thing. Like I, and in a lot of religions, you do see that where, you know, or even like I've been to Thailand and other places where you still see people putting, the Buddha's still putting food down. Next to, you know, the statue. Now, is that out of love? I want to give something? They think the statue's actually eating it? Or if it's just like, I want to make sure that I'm okay, and so I'm going to do that. So how does Leviticus or how does or Judaism deal with that aspect of our relationship with God? Right, so the sort of buying off God is what we don't want to have. 
Um, and certainly what we try with the Torah and Judaism tries to distance us from um, the idea of, you know, God can be bribed. If I give him a fat enough cow, then I'm okay for the day. Um, so that not. On the other hand, um, the Torah and Judaism in general, um, I think it's very realistic in its understanding of human personality. And it says, yes, there are, uh, there's an ideal relationship with God, which is based almost exclusively on love. Uh, but there's also other aspects to even a good relationship. I heard someone say, um, I thought it was a cute idea, I don't remember who, um, but that you know, fearing a spouse ultimately comes from, from love, meaning you're, you're afraid of their reaction because you care about their reaction. And, you know, the same thing applies to God, that there's a fear aspect which is in order and appropriate and can even be part of a healthy, uh, ideal relationship. So in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, you have different types of sacrifices that appropriately relate to different situations, different states of mind. So, for example, you have the Korban Todah, which is saying, thank you, God. Um, you have sacrifices that are nidavot, or free will offerings, that are um, a result of, of just wanting to give, pure and simple, out of love. Uh, but then you have sin offerings. And there's an idea, again, a relationship. I, you know, I made a mistake. I want to fix things up. Therefore, I'm going to do something, not as a bribe, but as an expression of the importance the relationship has in my life. And I think that's how we have to look at it, and I think it's the way that it's presented in, in, in Leviticus. Well, I mean, it's at least clear to me that this is not because God needs it. You know, Hashem doesn't need the sacrifice. Whatever we're doing is to change us, you know, and that's uh, and that's the whole point of this, that in some way we need to be where we need to be, and these kinds of actions ultimately change us to be the best that we can be. Uh, it's 100% right. I mean, in general, and that's the, the one of the questions this raised. God doesn't need a house, he right. a temple, he doesn't need sacrifices. But the bottom line is he doesn't need anything on some level <clears throat> that makes him a very difficult body, uh, character, personality to for us to connect to. And that's why he creates all these avenues. Even the Torah itself, uh, you know, is a difficult construction, meaning that for God to speak in any language, no matter how perfect we want to say uh, Hebrew is, and some people, you know, go to extreme levels about that, uh, it's limiting. Language, human speech, is necessarily limiting. God limits himself in the same way as the Jewish mystics speak about simtsum, which means God contracts himself in order to release some of the perfection that he always constantly contains um, and make space for something less than perfection to create the world. Um, when he writes the Torah, when he speaks out the Torah, on some level by using words, he is also being involved in simsum, contracting himself to language, which, again, the, the, the language of the Torah is beautiful and has so many possibilities. Uh, we've spoken about that before. You know, the idea of seventy approaches in the Torah, and, and they're all correct. Uh, in spite of that, there, uh, you know, Kant spoke about the ding an zich, the, the the essence of something. 
essence can't be fully comprehended in language. And that's the bottom line that, uh, you know, that, that we're dealing with God making room for mankind in all sorts of different ways. Well, in the very beginning of creation, he speaks the world into existence, which is like maybe the ultimate in, not the essence of it. It's just like the physical part. I guess the essence was already there. Maybe. And this goes, you know, into the more mystical discussions. Right. So, look, I know that, uh, and some of my Christian listeners who I've met and guided, and one of the things that they said to me when the conversation gets very honest and open is, Judaism is just so legalistic. It's just all about do this and do that, and not so much the essence. And I, I believe there's a bit of truth into anything that somebody says. I don't think I hold all the truth. I don't think Judaism holds all the truth. And I think sometimes it may be because we didn't have the sacrifices or didn't have the temple that um, we got focused on the Torah and not on the essence, meaning the Torah was given to us to learn in order to get closer to God. And some people got, they didn't get to the end. They started, they focused, they stopped at the means. And so Torah study became study for the, for the purpose of studying Torah and what happened to where we were supposed to go and using it as a vessel to get close to God. Like, what would you say to that? Right. And I think, I think the observation is 100% correct that um, Judaism, when it moved out of uh, a living country and a living people and, and went into the ghetto um, and was reduced to you know, this very urban type of life, divorced from nature, divorced from uh, various types of work, divorced from governing itself. Um, so it definitely became emaciated, and um, it, that put its mark on contemporary Judaism so that we ended up over-focusing on the details. Um, the, the, the ideal is that the details are a means to an end, but the point of this book of Leviticus and the Torah more generally is that you really want to perfect the ends, and you need to do the details right. So essentially, you know, on one foot, Judaism is saying, yes, the, 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 the most important thing is the big ideas. But the best way to get to the big ideas is to figure out all the details. If you do one without the other, well, you've got one without the other. And you, you're doing something good, but you're not perfecting what... You know, you're not being the best you can. And, and again, I think the idea that we're trying to understand in Leviticus is that <clears throat> not everybody has to do everything. There's specialization, and priests have to do certain things that Israelites don't. Mm-hmm. And the same division is, do I understand the difference between Jews and Gentiles, that um, the Jew is supposed to be that conduit for the rest of mankind that is able to transmit the message based on um, the very specific acts and, and ritual that he does, which is supposed to lead to the bigger ideas. So, you know, ideally, I hope that we're somehow moving back towards that. Certainly, I think conversations like this, which I have with more than just you, mm-hmm. um, move us in the right direction. And I think also that the challenge, when it's positive and constructive, uh, between Jews and Christians and Jews and Muslims, you know, it's it's not it, that critique is is not uh, leveled only from Christians, but from others as well. Is like what's with the details? 
um, I think it's positive because I think it challenges us. Um, you know, for some Jews, they 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 don't know what to do with that criticism. Either get you know very defensive, or say, "Oh, you're right." So I'm just going to leave the details because you're right. Um, neither of those are so helpful. Um, but I think the you know when, when Jews who are very involved and knowledgeable and and you know there are many more uh, Jews like that these days are engaged in conversations with others of this type. I think it's productive conversation. Say, well, you know, we're both trying to do similar things. Let's see how that works together. And, and, and you know, I have this critique about what you're doing. You have this critique about what I'm doing. And let's talk about it. You know, it, it, sometimes there's nothing, there's, we can't get anywhere, but many times we can. And I think it's a good example. So you and I are having this conversation at your home in Jerusalem. And against all odds, uh, although the prophets would say it differently, we're back. Now we're back to an Israel. We're back as a people closing fast on the majority, at least, or an absolute, more than 50% of the Jewish people who, people who identify as Jewish now living in, in our, you know, we're back as the indigenous people back into our homeland, not somewhere else. Um, how do you see that as affecting Judaism now? Like, what can we, I know you're also, and I want to tell this to my students, you're also a very uh, devoted to Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cordoza, someone who I was honored to uh, have on the show, and whose ideas about maybe certain changes that we should be making now, now that we're back home again, are very, very important to me. So, like, where do you see that? So, um, it's a, it's a big question, first of all. Um, Rabbi Cardozo and I don't agree about everything on on this uh, topic. I'd say about Rabbi Cardozo that he doesn't agree with himself about everything, and he's open enough to begin to say that, which is part of his greatness. Right. Um, so I think coming back to Israel clearly creates a tremendous opportunity to um, live a fully Jewish life and create. Um, a bigger Judaism, a more ambitious Judaism, uh, that's the opportunity, um, the idea of, of uh, Israel as a light to the nations. Uh, interestingly, as an aside, um, you know, sometimes <clears throat> we are in Israel say that we're being judged unfairly because we're judged by a double standard. You know, whenever um, X nation, you know, uh, has refugees or has issues, so they get away with it. When Israel, you know, the smallest thing happens and we're all over, you know, the media, people don't never seen a Jew in their life, read in their front page that, you know, the, the Jews injured the nose of someone in, in Gaza. Um, so while I agree that it, it can really uh, go too far, um, by, the, uh, by the same token, I welcome that double standard because I think that's exactly what we... Um, understand our identity to be, to be a light into the nations. If you're going to be a light, you have to be better than everybody else. And I think on some level, it's a backhanded compliment, this double standard. They expect more from the Jews. Again, there's, it's a complicated topic, and some of it comes from anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. But there's, there's some truth to be taken from that. Um, so do we have a new, a, a new opportunity living back in Israel as you said, the majority of the Jews, absolutely. Are we making use of it? I think time will tell. Um, certainly some interesting things have happened. 
um, Ruf Cook, who uh, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who actually lived before the creation of the state, but was really a mystic visionary who saw what Judaism should be when the Jews come back to Israel, and some levels were messianic. Um, so he had a vision which has you know caught the fancy of, of so many Jews here in Israel, and yet we fall so far short of his uh, great ideas that he had. Um, and it's it's sort of a paradox that here is there was this visionary who had these tremendous ideas that that really spoke exactly to what you're talking about to being that light light to the nations of impacting of creating something new and exciting and and you know uh, bringing the rivers back to to Israel and and the and the stream of spirituality that that comes out of Zion and so on and so forth. Um, so it's it's a bit of a paradox that here was this great visionary speaking about that before the state of Israel. He died in 1933, and there's never been someone like that since. I mean, there's a lot of smaller voices with some interesting ideas. You mentioned Rabbi Cordoza, and there, and there are many others. Um, some in 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 the uh, diaspora as well. Rabbi Sachs of, of England, also an interesting thinker, but yet no one has you know since this Rabbi Cook, no one has taken off his his vision i think is that this he was going to be one of you know the forerunner of many people that are going to be speaking like this and and uh, having this type of vision and it's true that again people speak his ideas i mean uh, his his works are everywhere he's obviously one of the most famous rabbis and influences on all sorts of rabbis and religious jews and non-religious jews in israel be that as it may, somehow it never really took off. And it's not clear that it is taking off. You know, again, there are different streams that rise and fall. And, and you know, there was a, a, a book that I reviewed uh, recently by another rabbi who made some waves who was interesting in that he was really sort of a, um, someone who really took Rav Cook's model and, and went with it further than anybody uh, that I know. And that's Rav Shagar, um, yeah. who was probably a, near neighbor of yours. Um, and um, so there was, a, there was a different way of thinking, a new way of thinking. Um, it's not clear to me that that's going anywhere fast either. So as I said, you know, we live within history. It's hard to know what's going to be 50 years from now. It's hard to know what's going to be 100 years from now. It's clear that we have a tremendous opportunity, and it's clear that there's something going on, exactly what it is and how, to what extent, we'll fulfill the potential that being back is is affording us, it's hard to know. Well, I think it's also important that for people to realize that the Torah is not just for religious people or people who call themselves religious, right, who are into more of the details, shall we say. It's one of the things that we see here in Israel. And there's a whole peoplehood aspect here. And you have now people getting interested in the text. One of the nicest things that I'll ever hear when I'm guiding is after a day of guiding with people who wouldn't call themselves religious when they'll say, well, I'm going to go look at the Tanakh now because what you're showing me today makes me understand that there's messages in the Tanakh that I never thought related to me and ideas here that are exciting way beyond pulling it out, pulling a scroll out on Saturday and reading it and that kind of thing just really doesn't do it for me. I'd rather be somewhere else. But it's interesting that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago about the nature aspect of it because one of the things that I see, and again, I'm privileged to be able to go around the country, is what an agrarian people we are, not just our calendar and how it's all around the cycle of holidays, but for example, Isaiah's famous, you know, I shall beat my spears into plowshares. 
you think about that. It's not I shall beat my spears into a bench and sit there and just watch. I want to work. It's a plowshare. Now, a plowshare is only going to do what it's supposed to do if somebody's using it, right? And it's a beautiful vision of peace isn't just hanging out. Peace means being able to work and no one bothers me, which isn't, you know, I don't think, I don't know if people listen to that and read that and understand or even, I mean, I was up on Mount Grizzly and Mount Bracha yesterday with a group of, a school of girls. And one of the things that wasn't Shabbat, by the way, you're listening to this on Sunday. So that's why I'm saying this is pre-taped. Okay. Um, so you know, I wasn't, I would never go on Shabbat, but one of the things that I, I was talking to them about is the parable of Yotam. You know, this like crazy story from the book of Judges right after Gidon. If you guys don't know it, go look it up. And the parable is also all about nature, right? Asking the olive tree if it'll take over, the fig tree if it'll take over, or the vine. And then saying, okay, well, you guys are stuck with the thorn bush. But all of this, the image that is being drawn here is not just a nature image, but it's the nature of the land of Israel. And you absolutely cannot understand, forget the message behind the parable. You can't understand the broad strokes, the picture that they're painting, if you don't understand Israel. And here we're back now, and I stood up there and I thought, well, for the gazillionth time, Rashi and the great commentators of the Bible didn't really get to see this. They didn't get to understand it. Right, right. No, absolutely. I think uh, there's that, and there's the, the connections to nature, which, which people in the cold Eastern Europe uh, villages, I mean, some, some, you know, in fact, some Jews in, in uh in Germany and, and in Eastern Europe, did work the land. But, um, Not by this and, land, though. Yeah. yeah, by and large, we were disconnected from any land, which is and two steps removed, and specifically from this land, um, which, um, you know, I go out and, and, and walk um, in the forest and, and orchards and wherever in, in Israel, and there's a specific connection. You're right. Every land has, um, you know, its own images, as you mentioned, that, that are brought out in the Bible. But uh, these images are relating something very real that is beyond ideas and beyond words. Um, you know, I mentioned before, you can never get to the essence of a thing. But if you don't see it and feel it and smell it, you don't even get to its external shell. So you're, you're, as I said, you're two steps removed. So certainly this allows the possibility of, of coming closer to what the Jewish tradition is all about. And as you said, one of the nice things about um, the return to, to the land of Israel is that everybody living in Israel, I mean, all the Jews living in Israel, um, have this connection with the land of, of hiking and going and, and you know, it's, uh, it's different than the Boy Scouts in, in the United States or, or a Sierra Club. It's, it's part of the culture that uh, has an effect and, and people are more connected even if they're not totally connected here in Israel. Uh, again, all that being said, we're living at the beginning of this uh, renewal and it's hard to know where it's going, you know, I see two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes it's the opposite. Um, and it's hard to know, you know, I, I'm not a prophet, and one hopes that one is living in the trajectory that's moving way up. You know, if you have, if you own stocks on, on the market, you know, sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down, but you hope that the, you know, ideally it should soar. That's, and we live in the same situation. We're in this 
positive bull market, if you want. Um, and we're hoping that it's just going to soar. But um, but it's hard to know. I, I guess the, the, the main thing is to do our part. You know, that's what I'm trying to do in my writing and my teaching right. and so on and so forth. And I know it's what you're doing also and what you do. Do you think that your what you do would be different if you weren't here in Israel? Could you even do this if you weren't here in Israel? I could, but I wouldn't have. <laughs> Part of the reason I'm doing it is the way my career evolved, and it would have clearly evolved in a different way. And in the United States, I was very involved in educational administration, and um, I was good at it. And there's there's no reason why you know I would have thought to do a lot of writing. I wouldn't have had the time. Um, or speaking outside to whatever responsibilities I had directly or indirectly within a, within a community. Um, so I wouldn't have. Um, you know, I, I, it's interesting because uh, on some level I'm positively influenced by my living here in Israel in terms of the connection to the land, um, being a part of this renewal and all these lovely things that we feel. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, I see that people that are coming from experience in diaspora bring a certain um, wealth of tolerance and knowledge and um, there's, there's all sorts of things that they bring which aren't necessarily here with people that um, are born here, grew up here from, from a young age. So you know, I think I mentioned this in one of our talks that exile is, is definitely part of the Jewish experience in, in as much of, uh, as being Israel is part of our experience. We spent more time outside than inside, and that's not by accident. Uh, so, so I think that, you know, just like sadness or challenge makes us into better people, Exile and not being our home also has its role, and it can be painful. It can be difficult. It, it can we we can be disconnected, um, but all of that is part of creating a more rich and meaningful experience. So, um, I feel doubly blessed in that I experienced exile, and it was uh, uh, in my case it was a pleasant exile. You know, the United States, and even my time in Western Europe was was you know. Pleasant. It was, you know, people for the most part, I and mean, almost everybody I met liked Jews, or like me at least. Uh, um, and, you know, almost never, I mean, a couple cases here and there, but almost never encountered anti Semitism. So, you know, it's hard for me to say I've suffered in exile. But be that as it may, you know, there are issues and there are hardships, and you're running against the current and, and all that. And in spite of the difficulties, I'm thankful that I experienced that because for me personally, it made me better. Um, so like any challenge and difficulty, I don't wish it on my children. But on the other hand, that's what makes the Torah so rich, makes Jewish experience so rich, is not just looking for flowers and candy and, and, and living at home and, and taking it easy but welcoming the difficulties that God throws our way with the understanding that it makes us people that are fit to be priests. Um, that, you know, you, you, when, you, when you join the Marines, you know, the elite corps in the army, so you have to work really hard. You know, it's, it's not just, well, I'm going to take it easy and 
I, I think I'd rather be in the Marines than in the Army. And that's what Jewish life is about. So, yes, it's great being in Israel. Yes, it's enhanced who I am and what I'm writing and what I'm teaching. But that's not to say that my experience outside of Israel hasn't also done that in very different ways. Well, just as a people, like we don't even get the Torah at Sinai until we've been exiled for hundreds of years and in a very difficult situation. So it's clear that, you know, because Abraham could have stayed, Abraham is Jacob, and you have your kids here and the 12 tribes, and then, I don't know, somewhere near Tel Aviv, we get the Torah, and it's all good. There's a there's a huge message here that, it, that we're coming in from the exile and bringing this in with us into the land. And so I think this, you know, just sits on all of what we're doing here. But your books, your series in particular, are called Redeeming Relevance which is, I love alliteration, so that's great, but that it's not just this book out there, that like the things that the, the messages, which is why I enjoy them so much because it just gets more relevant for me all the time, that there's messages here that the Torah are giving us that are not for another time and place that we're just kind of, because of tradition and whatever, and we're kind of used to it, just bringing here, but that what's what the Torah gave us is for today as well as it was for 3,000 years ago. Right, I think it's the way, from the very first book, I point out that's the way Jews have studied Torah all the time. Um, not just rabbis giving this, you know, sermons which are relevant, but disconnected to our text and not learning our texts in a disconnected way. Um, one of the most beautiful things about the Jewish tradition is you have, um, you know, really erudite rabbis like Rashi you mentioned or Nachmanides, uh, Ramban, or Rabbi Shemshon Fuller Hirsch, and, and up to our own time, um, who could have written their commentaries in such a way that it's disconnected um, and no one would read them. But that wasn't the point. The point wasn't study for its own sake. The point was what this this supposed to mean to me now and to my congregation. That's the way Jews have always read the Torah, and I think that's the eternality of the Torah, is to look at it and say, well, okay, so here are the stories and here are the patterns, here are all these wonderful things. What, if anything, does it have to say to me? And, you know, one of the quips that I got when I started the series or in the middle of the series is how are you going to make Leviticus relevant, right? <laughs> so, and the truth is it wasn't that hard. It really wasn't. Once you start working on it and once you move beyond your prejudices, um, it's there. All you have to do is, is look for it. I mean, I just came from uh, visiting a friend who lost her husband, and he and her two sons are priests. They're kohanim. So she was telling me, for example, and this is one of the what's left over, I suppose, from the priesthood still for today, that going to their father's funeral for her sons was the first time, and they're well into their 20s, was the first time in their lives they'd ever been to a cemetery. Like, they had no idea what was going on because one of the prohibitions is for priests even until today to go into a cemetery. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. I heard a, you know, a, a cute idea, um, a Hasidic idea, and again, I apologize, I don't remember who said it, that the priests, um, well, the, the first part is not a Hasidic idea. The, the, the first idea is that um, in order to give the priestly blessing, it has to come from joy. A person has to be in a state of joy, or at least not of sadness. Um, so priests are kept away from things that make one sad. Um, that's the reason some people, uh, most people in the Ashkenazi world, don't give the priestly blessings outside of Israel except on holidays. 
Um, and here in Israel, everybody gives it. We're happier. It's interesting, you know, just uh, a, a detail which is the embodiment of something bigger, of something uh, that speaks to our return to the land. But um, the the idea that, that I heard is that um, when you confront death, even if you can understand it philosophically, it's still hard to connect to God. And it's hard to be happy. and It creates all sorts of stumbling blocks between the person and God. Um, and one's state of happiness, which comes from a healthy connection with God. Um, therefore, the priests are told, it's not your job. And as everybody has, as I mentioned before, specialties, you have to focus on what you have to focus on and let, you know, this type of mourning um, situation and, and connect um, interaction with the dead, let someone else do it. Um, and, and you know, I think this is the idea of specialization didn't come around just with the Industrial Revolution. It's something that is innate to the human condition. As we're, we're communities. We, we, we live not as individuals, everybody on his own mountain, doing everything for himself or herself. Um, we're here to share in our religious experience and work together. And priests are not to be involved with that role, except very special circumstances, such as, uh, you know, a father, or in this case a son, should mourn for the father, even if they're a priest, and that overrides, so to speak. Interestingly enough, as, as I'm sure you know, but not maybe all of your listeners, is that the high priest would not do that. Even if it was, you know, his father or his son, he would not, uh, you know, go and, and follow and, and go to the cemetery and, there's a cute Mishnah that speaks around about how he would follow the funeral procession from a distance, right? Because there was some connection, but it had to be very limited. And in his case, he really had to be connected to God, almost to the exclusivity of, you know, concern with, with his own family. Mm-hmm. I see that also like with Moses, with Moshe Rabbeinu, where he has also like major restrictions that are put on him. That's right, and and we see that he has issues in terms of his family life. Right? The, the there's an allusion in the Bible that his uh, sons, at least one of them, didn't turn out so well, and 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 so on and so forth. But the, even without that, we see there's there's very. You know, I wrote about that in another book. There's very little connection between Moses and his wife and his children um, because that wasn't his job. You know. I explained why it was important for him to get married and have children, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he was a monastic father and a monastic right. husband. He really um, had to turn away from that and said, well, maybe I, I don't know if he figured out what God told him, but essentially, you know, this is not my role. Someone else is going to have to do this and take care of my children. And, and the truth is, you know, uh, nobody can be perfect at everything, and that takes its cost, you know, a person might say, well, that's tragic. How could God allow Moses not to take care of his children? But the bottom line is, you know, as human beings in a zero-sum world, um, we can't be perfect at everything. And, and we, we always, you know, a person who's real has to make hard choices. You're always cutting corners somewhere. And for some people, it's going to be in one place. And for other people, it's going to be another place. And again, that's part of the Jewish tradition that I see. 
One of the more esoteric stories, I don't know if esoteric is the word also that I was, when I guide, is Pesel Micha, especially when you're up near Shiloh and there's this kind of alternate altar that's kind of pretty much across the street or right in the same area. And, and the Rashi, I believe, saying that actually the priest that is brought up to be with Micha is the grandson of Moshe, that it's written Menashe, but the Nun is very small. Um, as so not to embarrass him, but this is how far his grandson falls. You know, Jacob's grandsons are Ephraim and Menashe, the real other Menashe, right? Who come out of Egypt with us and really join the Jewish people. We bless our children in their names, our sons in their names, let's say on Friday night for those of us who do that. And here, you know, Moses' grandson is like basically, you know, an idol worshiper and, and how absolutely tragic that is. But I think that would resonate with a lot of people listening is those priorities. A lot of, a lot of leaders that we know, a lot of big leaders, are not great family men. They're not great fathers yeah. or husbands yeah. even because they're focused on on their community and or really the extreme because the Torah tells you to, to try and have children at least. That's a big age like Jeremiah, who was so caught up with his people as the prophet and so concerned, rightly so, as it turns out, that we're going to get exiled and the first temple will be destroyed, that he himself doesn't even build a family. Right, right. And... You know, it, it's true in the um, in the secular world as well. A lot of the major philosophers never got married um, for obvious reasons. You, you only have a certain amount of hours in the day and, and years and, and, and days in the year. Um, if you want to become really great at something, it's hard to do other things. Um, most people aren't that great and, and need to focus on, on living a balanced life. Um, which involves a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But there are some people that need to choose that for themselves. And some some people are guided uh, by God into that role. I was thinking of uh, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who didn't who got married but didn't have children. Well, that, that saved him a tremendous amount of time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible way to look at it, but... On a on a real level, he may not have been the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You're saying, right. had he had children, even though it was a personal tragedy. 100. Listen, he would have been a great person, right. but as great, I don't know. I don't know, and certainly not as available to his uh, to his followers. It's uh, you know a, a curse can sometimes be a blessing, and, and it's a question of how to frame it, how to understand it, and. You know that's one of the difficulties of life, and you're talking about death uh, as well. Is is that we're limited in how we frame things? We don't understand why certain things happen, and sometimes we're able to reframe things and and see the blessing in the curse. But other times we're not. We're just uh, we just see the curse, and that's all we see. Um, I, and I think that's a matter of faith to understand that. <clears throat> in the same way that there are times when we do see it, you know, there's that famous story. About uh, <clears throat> excuse me about Rabbi Akiva, when he has uh, you know he's walking on the way traveling and, and he has a rooster, a, a donkey, and uh, he has a candle because it's good to have a candle whatever. So he wants to lodge in a town. They don't let him. So he has to lodge in the forest. And uh, you know the the in the meantime his his donkey gets eaten and and his uh, rooster gets eaten. And even his light, you know, blows away. So it's like miserable, right? But in the end, um, there's brigands that come to town, destroy the town. And they were destroyed, him as well, had they known he was around by noise of a camel, uh, of a donkey, by noise of the rooster, by light. So 
Rabbi Kiva actually had a very tragic and difficult life. So why why does the Talmud tell us that story? It's like everything is 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 like uh, sugar coated. That's not the point. The point of the Talmud, the way I understand it, that's of that story of relating that story, is to tell us. Here's an example where you can see the blessing and the curse. Just realize that's always the case. And that's what Rekiva exactly said. He said, I always say it's for the good. You know, in this particular case, I actually saw it. Most of the time I didn't. Um, and that's, you know, especially people living in difficult times, difficult situations. We all have difficult situations. Uh, that being said, again, we're, we're in a blessed time. We're, uh, as Jews living in Israel, um, uh, and, and even for all mankind, certainly economically, it's it's a, you know it's a tremendous blessing in the world in terms of uh, what we have to eat, of uh, what we have available to us, of, of all sorts of opportunities that are available to us. Mention uh, communication between Jews and Christians. You know the 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 type of communication that's going on is on such a different, more positive level than you know we've lived together as as twin religions uh, for. You know, two thousand years, and uh, you know, most of the time it wasn't so, so nice. Um, but we're we're living in in a time that there's tremendous blessing. So, you know, sometimes when I feel challenged or I see other people being challenged, I think of how uh, babyish we are in comparison to the challenges that Jews certainly, um, but mankind more more generally faced throughout almost all of history compared to what we're um, facing now. You know, uh, we, we here in Israel are concerned, and rightly so, about our security. But um, when you, you know, think about the numbers and you think about the situation of, you know, how much safer Jews are in general and uh, in Israel in particular, today than we've almost ever been, then it, it, I think it's an important perspective to appreciate. And, and, as a, and people, some, Jews somehow trusted God throughout all of these terrible difficulties that they had. For us to bring questions now seems, uh, you know, a little bit weak. Right. But it's all a matter of faith, of even if it, we don't understand, and a lot of things we don't understand, or as Esther Waxman said many years ago, when her son Nachshon was was killed, uh, she said, you, and people said, but you prayed. And there was a whole thing at the Kotel, and thousands of people came, and she said, well, you still have to ask, but sometimes Hashem says no. And it doesn't mean that you don't try and connect. There's a bigger picture that we don't see, that he does. And uh, and that's what we have to go with. So, Rabbi Francis Montaff, thank you so much. If people want to get the book, of course, to add to the collection of the rest of your books they already have, or if they want to, I know that you sometimes go out on speaking engagements, and, uh, and they can have you in person. How do they get in contact with you? So, you know, I like people speaking to me in person, um, but easiest to get my uh, Gmail account, going on a limb, putting it on the radio, but it's uh, Francis Nataf, F-R-A-N-C-I-S-N-A-T-A-F, at Google, um, dot, yeah, like everybody else. <laughs> dot, at, I'm sorry, at Gmail, not like everybody else, yeah, um, at gmail.com. And I welcome any correspondence of any type. Um, certainly, Amazon is going to be a place to buy my books. It may not be available on Amazon right away, though the other four volumes are. Um, you can uh, Google my name and you'll find where it's available. It's available from the publishers 
who again are neighbors of yours or in publications, uh, which is actually based in Jerusalem, but the, the uh, director lives not far from Eve. Um, in any case, I welcome everybody to continue the conversation with me. It's the last book, but the conversation continues. Where do you go from here now that you finished the five big ones? You know, I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> I want to keep interviewing you. It's like you can't drop it here. That for sure. So I am, as we speak, working on another book, which is something totally different than this series. It's about the Jewish political tradition and what can offer to the world um, in terms of breaking the impasse between um, the more traditional folk and the more um, liberal um, universalistic, uh, progressive, whatever label. Um, so I think there's a real impasse. I think that the, what's been dubbed culture wars is something deeper and more lasting than um, anything we've experienced for the last 150 to 200 years. I think that society is coming to a, a difficult situation and it requires new answers. I hope that uh, I'll be... I mean, I have some answers. That, I don't know if they're right answers, but I have some suggestions based on Jewish tradition. And I hope people will listen. Well, you know, if you want to interview me about those answers, be happy at least uh, to share some of these ideas with the listeners. That's great. We're going to get a preview of that. We'll come back before the book is published. Okay, thank you so much, Rabbi Nataf. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. And uh, I'm sure my listeners did as well. Okay, everybody, you know you can write to me, eve at thelandofisrael.com. Website, new website is finally up. So Eve Harrow and uh, com, and you'll see where I'm going to be next month, actually just in a couple of weeks, and all my goings on. And of course, uh, catch up on some of the old shows here in New Vista. So take care, everybody. Once again, thank you for listening. Thanks to Tabitha and to Ben, and to everybody at the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everyone. Goodbye for now. For Rosh Chodesh Adar Bet, this coming new moon, we are doing the Land of Israel Network Shabbaton at the Dead Sea, called the Israel Inspired Retreat, where there's going to be Torah study and connection and meditation and prayer, and we're going to be able to connect and to talk about everything that's going on in Israel today on spiritual levels. It's going to be a really special weekend. You can find out about it on thelandofisrael.travel. That's thelandofisrael.travel. You can see all the details there. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.